you. And good morning. You know, I'm supposed to say that to you, and it is definitely a good morning, being the Lord's day. But if we're going to get real, you know, I know a number of you here maybe aren't feeling like it's a very good morning. You know, some of you have come carrying a lot of pain. Maybe it's stress and anxiety. Perhaps you're grieving a loss that is hard to bear. But you came here, in this room. The real, the terrible, the tragic, and even the hope. This room's holding it all right now. We come with our stories. Often they're buried inside of us. One sermon, it's not going to fix it. It's not going to fix us. But it can invite us, even with our stories, into beauty. And that's what I'm here for. I'm real excited about this morning is to bring you an invitation into beauty because beauty rises. And we all want to behold beauty. It's just built into our DNA or something. But, but beauty isn't something that I can just get up here and teach you about. Beauty needs to be shown. And it is an invitation. It's a beckoning, even. And our verse today is an invitation to gaze at beauty. So read Song of Songs 311 with me. Go out, young woman of Zion, and gaze at King Solomon, wearing his crown his mother placed on him on the day of his wedding, the day of his heart's rejoicing. Poetry, metaphor, and song, they help us to see beauty in ways that didactical teaching or, or propositional statements cannot do. Did you ever wonder why the Song of Songs is even in Scripture? I think a lot of people are even afraid to go there. They don't know how to read it. Um, how many sermons have you heard on the Song of Songs? You know, maybe God has it in Scripture because he wants to teach us something about beauty. It's a theme in the song, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. It's really the theme of our lives. God is inviting us into beauty. So I want us to look at this verse today as an invitation to beauty, and I hope you see it that way by the end of the sermon. Beauty directs our eyes to Christ. Now maybe you're scratching your head thinking, okay, she's talking about Jesus, and this clearly says King Solomon in it. Well, we need to know how to read the song, and Solomon is a key to unlocking the song. The woman whose voice is prominent in it, she is seeking a king like Solomon. But we get a sense that she's talking about an even greater king than he is. Because this is the song of all songs, as she calls it. So verse one in the song, the song of songs, which is Solomon's, it can be translated in different ways. It could mean in Solomon's style. It could mean that it's dedicated to Solomon. It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, it's about Solomon or that that's even the key character in it. But it does reference Solomon's world, even as he's sometimes a foil character in the song. He was the king who was the man of rest. His name, Solomon, meaning peace. 
And ultimately, the song might be directing us to his greatest achievement, which was the building, the construction of the temple. And maybe the song, as one author suggests, is the place of ultimate sanctity and deepest awe where we can go to enter into that holy place where we can have the most intimate communion with Christ. That's how the early church fathers thought of the Song of Songs. They called it the holy of holies of scripture. And how does it take us there? Through allegory, metaphor, and typology. God even does this in his creation of men and women. He's telling us a story, a beautiful story, that we are a part of, the story of God's spousal love for his bride. So let's look at this man and this woman in the song. What are we beholding when we gaze at the King Solomon of the song on his wedding day and the crown with which he is crowned? The song shows us a picture of beauty, Christ and his bride. And there are numerous modern interpretations of the song out there that are different nowadays. But from the early church all the way up into the 19th century, the song was interpreted as an allegory of Christ's love for his collective church bride and the soul of uh, each individual believer. So the man in the song then, uh, the king and the shepherd that the woman continuously calls my love and the one whom my soul loves, he is Jesus, the second Adam, the king of kings, the great shepherd, the one who brings peace. And in the end of the song, we learn that she finds peace, shalom, Solomon, in his eyes. We also learn that he is a great lover and a great husband, and all this was set in motion by his love for us. This is what we are beckoned to behold in our verse together. And that makes us, all of us, the woman in the song, speaking for the collective church and the soul of each one of you. You see, the song isn't like any other songs. It's dynamic and it's sweeping us up with it in a sense. And so our verse shows us a picture, what is theologically known as the total Christ. If you wanna get fancy in Latin, it's totus Christus. And this doctrine is that Christ and his church are so united in nuptial union that there is no talking about Christ without his church. And there is no church without Christ. And we will not grasp the scandal of love until we begin to let this sink in as much as we are capable. And our bodies even tell this story. Let's go in scripture to when Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees. And he asks him, you know, do you remember even what you've read in the creation account? He says, have you read? Now, sure, they know the scriptures, but they don't seem to get it. The meaningfulness of God's acts, of love itself, because here they are trying to test him, right? So what does Jesus do? He gets to the beautiful picture, the one that we too often miss, of God's creating us as male and female. And he says this, 
For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. He's just quoting from scripture right there, right? Genesis 2, 24. Well, Paul picks up on this in his talk about marriage, saying, we are members of Christ's body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. It is profound. And I want you to hold on to this idea of the total Christ while we look at the typology of man and woman. Now, when I say the word typology, what I'm talking about is a picture. Typology is a picture that teaches us, and it reveals the end game, what's, what's ahead. It makes visible the invisible. And our bodies speak beauty. So if we return to the creation story for a minute, we see a testimony to the glory of God's dwelling place in the creation of the heavens. What does that testimony do? What does it do when you look at the heavens even now? It beckons us to where we wanna be with God in his glory realm. Then God made man from the soil of the land that he gave him and he breathes life into him, right? But woman, is created differently than man. She's created second, and she's not created from the soil. God made woman from man. So both the difference in mode and creation order, it tells us a story. What is a story? Well, some want to teach us that that means woman is subordinate. She is less. Where is the beauty there? And what I want to do is to invite you to look at the big picture that our sexuality tells. And it is a picture of a testimony to where we are headed. Woman represents this, the second order, the final act of creation, what we await, arrayed with the glory and radiance of the sun. She signifies the promise of his life beyond probation. And that's what we see in the end game of scripture in Revelation 21:11. The invisible is made visible. And I hope I've just kind of astounded you there and, and said, you know, what is she talking about even maybe a little bit? You wanna go back and look at this in scripture yourself. Behold, woman's very presence beckons man to our ultimate hope as the bride of Christ. Man was to pass through probation with his bride to do what? Ascend to the holy mountain Zion, which her very body represents. The bride, the wife of the lamb, the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. There's the picture. There's the end game. The first woman as his necessary ally and partner was to be a corresponding strength in their mission to receive the great reward of eternal communion with God for them and for their progeny. And that is exactly what Satan went after in his deception. But God is ahead of the story. 
Jesus Christ, the second Adam, left his father and mother Zion glory realm to cleave to his bride and ascend with her to the holy of holies. That's our story. And our bodies and flesh and signify this good news, this love. We are icons in a sense, showcasing the story of the outgoing, overflowing love of the triune God. That's profound. Stop and think about that for a second. We were created to share in the Father's love for the Son by the Spirit. And we see that foreshadowed in the creation story. We see woman made from the side of man who was put to sleep for that, right? He was put down. Is that not a picture of the church flowing from the side of Jesus who gave his life for her? This is the overarching story that we find in scripture, that heaven and earth will come together, a new heaven and a new earth where God's people will have communion with him eternally and with one another there, Christ and his bride. Now man typologically speaks to the means of this ascent and union. He is pointing typologically to the bridegroom, the incarnate Christ, who is the first to love, the first to give, and the first to sacrifice. Woman typologically speaks of the realm and people of ascent, Zion, bride. And in the Song of Songs, we get an explosion of this typology with a woman just celebrating in it. And she is teaching both men and women what it's like to be the bride of Christ. So you know, why do we use allegory to uh, teach something that you know, is written somewhere else in scripture? Well, these allegories and typologies of Christ in the church, they do something to us. They surprise us, they delight us, they stir our affections, and they bring scripture together. They show us this radiance with echoes to other parts in scripture, um, and they ignite an enhanced meaning. As we're reading the song, as we're reading this story, we're getting the whole meta narrative of scripture, and we're swept up in it. So let's look at this woman in the song. She's full of delight. She's full of anticipation and longing for her shepherd king. When we read this song, we can't help but want what she wants. We can't help but feel what she feels and long to be a part of what she describes. Our verse today gives us this full picture of the total Christ. I love how John Owen puts it. He says, it is the day of his coronation and his spouse is the crown wherewith he is crowned. For as Christ is a diadem of beauty and a crown of glory unto Zion, so Zion is also a diadem and a crown unto him. Total Christ. The crown pictures our value and, and this rejoicing that is mutually ours in our consummation on Zion. You see, beauty is a theme throughout the song. And we all wanna be beautiful. I'm just gonna show you all the verses where the man speaks in the song about the woman's beauty. 
He says, most beautiful of women in Psalm 1-8. Two verses later, he's admiring her, saying her cheeks are beautiful. Again, a few lines later, he says, how beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. Your eyes are doves. And she responds, calling him handsome. Again, in another scene, we have the lover approaching, and he's calling out to her, and he says, come away, my beautiful one. He repeats the same line again two, three verses later. Come away, my beautiful one. Then he tells her that her face is lovely. When we get to our verse, the day of his heart's rejoicing, he directs our gaze. We're directed to look at the king, right? But he directs our gaze back to the woman in something called a wasp poem. Uh, a wasp poem in ancient Arabic love poetry was a genre where there's just this delightfully describing of multiple body parts often using like metaphoric comparisons. So, you know, this is probably like a lot of the, the awkward verses <laughs> that we see in the song these days because we don't understand this type of poetry. And he begins with, how beautiful you are, my darling. How very beautiful. And at the close of the wasp, again, he reiterates, you are absolutely beautiful, my darling. There is no imperfection in you. Later, the daughters of Jerusalem call the bride the most beautiful of women. Now they see it too. And the second time, the bride is searching desperately for her groom in the song, and she finally finds him. And he exclaims, you are beautiful as Tirzah, my darling, lovely as Jerusalem, awe-inspiring as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they captivate me. That sets him off into another wasp and then another one. And he's praising her beauty again. As he's gazing at her, he says, how beautiful you are. And again, as it's closing, he says, how beautiful you are and how pleasant my love with such delights. Man, your beauty matters. Look how the groom uses his voice over and over in the song to speak of his bride's beauty. And you know what? She says it first about herself so boldly, so confidently. Um, right in the beginning of the song, uh, song one, verse five, she says, I am black and beautiful. That's pretty bold, right? Why does she say that so early? Remember Totus Christus. What's true about her is true about him and vice versa. Behold, Christ's beautiful bride. She radiates his own beauty. I left out one verse that speaks where the groom is speaking of her beauty. And I wanted to do that so that I could use that verse to tie all this together and show where else in scripture we see this. And that is Psalm 610. Who is this who shines like the dawn, as beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awe-inspiring as an army with banners. Man, what a glorious verse. Who is this woman? Well, this verse activates multiple others. Let's start with the end game. Who else is described as shining? Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.16, he had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Later, we see the woman 
described this way in Revelation. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. This same language is also in Isaiah, speaking of the restoration of God's people and the glory of the Lord revealed in Zion. Beauty captivates us because it tells us a story. It's the story that our hearts already know and long for. Robert Jensen suggests that beauty is realized eschatology, the present glow of the sheer goodness that will be. The bride shines like the dawn. The military language in this verse from the song evokes yet another scripture about Christ's coronation. It's one of my favorite parts in scripture, Psalm 110. Um, We're let in on a mystery in that psalm where the father is speaking to the son and we get to hear that. And what does he say? Your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor. From the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. Man, what a beautiful, awe-inspiring picture of the church, appearing in splendor like the morning dew. Behold, the glory of God manifest in his bride. After this, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the lamb. You see, beauty beckons us because it's preparing our souls for love. It also beckons our imaginations to see where we're headed. Can you see her? The beautiful, multi-ethnic bride? The crown with which our king is crowned? Just a glimpse? Then you also see beauty in yourself, Christ in you. We're beckoned to to participate in the great honor and calling of seeing and participating in beauty. It's an invitation into reality, really. Dallas Willard describes beauty as goodness made manifest to the senses. And we really see that in the Song of Songs. So then beauty helps us to see others through the eyes of Christ And you know what we see? We see that his bride is black and beautiful. Are we not all inspired by this? That means that we get in. You get in, I get in. And we are all called now to cultivate beauty in our spiritual lives, in our relationships, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our vocations. Artist Mikado Fujimura says that without an appreciation for beauty, Culture loses its appetite for truth and goodness. He even proposes that repentance itself is provoked by an encounter with the beautiful. Of course it is. You know, once we encounter beauty, we see how ugly sin is and we want to strip it away from us. We desire beauty. And what is that but Christ Jesus himself? St. Augustine exhorts us, let us therefore who believe Run to meet the bridegroom who is beautiful wherever he is. 
beautiful as God, as the word who was with God. He is beautiful in the virgin's womb where he did not lose his Godhead, but assumed our humanity. Beautiful he is as a baby, as the word unable to speak, because while he was still without speech, still a baby in the arms and nourished at his mother's breast, the heavens spoke for him. A star guided the magi, and he was adored in the manger as food for the humble. He was beautiful in heaven, then beautiful on earth, beautiful in the womb and beautiful in his parents' arms. He was beautiful in his miracles, but just as beautiful under the scourges, beautiful as he invited us to life, but beautiful too and not shrinking from death, beautiful in laying down his life and beautiful in taking it up again, beautiful on the cross, beautiful in the tomb, and beautiful in heaven. That's what we get to behold, that beauty. And we even radiate that ourselves now as his bride and his body. So how can we cultivate that beauty here and now? We need to recognize the invitation of beauty. Esther Meek calls beauty an epiphany. She says reality is too. When you get to the heart of reality, it's a here I am. It's fundamentally a self gift of love. It's an event to which you're summoned to show up. It's not an item that you collect. It's not some characteristic of this painting or that painting or not. It's an event. And it's not something of my own personal taste subjectively. Beauty summons me. It summons all of me. It's not within us. It's something outside of us that's beckoning us. It's, it's the self-gift of love. And it's the spousal love of God to his bride. Again, so showcased in the Song of Songs. It's dynamic, fructifying, and reciprocal. So we cultivate beauty by valuing it, by wondering in its epiphany and responding to it then with our own self-gift of love to each other. So open your eyes and wonder of the beauty that surrounds us in our day. Let it cause you to pause, to be in the present, to evoke gratitude in you for its gift and reorient our deepest desires and then be sent out again to create with it. Beauty is diverse and generative. Diversity is beautiful. Ask the black and beautiful bride. Mikado Fijimira helps us to understand that we all choose to give away beauty gratuitously. And that begins with directing our eyes to Jesus Christ and loving as he loves. He's preparing our souls even now. And we're just beginning, aren't we? We're just beginning to really learn what love even is. But beauty rises. So poet Malcolm Geet hints at where it starts in his poem called A Grain of Wheat. And it's a meditation on John 12:24. Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Is this first not a picture of the creation of woman, of Adam dying for her? and of Christ dying for his bride, it's the same story. So I wanna just close with that picture and close with Malcolm Geet's poem. And I'm gonna read that poem as our closing prayer. So bow your heads with me this morning to our shepherd king, dear Jesus. Oh, let us fall as grain to the good earth and die away from all separation 
die to our soul selves and find new birth within that very death, a dark fruition deep in this crowded underground to learn the earthly otherness of every other, to know that nothing is achieved alone, but only where these other fallen gather. If we bear fruit and break through bright air, then fall upon us with your fleeing flail to shuck these husks and leave us sheer and clear as heaven-handled Hawkins, that our fall may be more fruitful and our autumn still a golden evening where your barns are full. Amen. Now may the God of Zion bless you and keep you. And we pray that his face will shine upon you this week. Have a good day.